Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. So there's not a ton to say to introduce this episode. I believe it is going to be the first of some indeterminate little mini-series where I chat with people who are to my right theologically, who have worries, concerns, um, they're uneasy about progressive Christianity for whatever reasons. And I go into these conversations not really knowing what those concerns are, and we just have an organic conversation about it. These kind of conversations are important for me to have, especially as it seems to me the kind of culture war between the progressive slash deconstructed Christianity crowd and the historic slash traditional or whatever orthodox Christian crowd, how that becomes more and more of a culture war and a tribal identity. And there are more and more careers being launched by people who it seems that their primary messaging is that they are on one of those teams and they create content for members of that team and not the other team. Uh, this is true of some people who brand their work very much about deconstruction. And you can find these people on Twitter and Instagram uh, quite easily. And then it's true of people like Alyssa Childers. Uh, I recorded that response episode to one of her interviews, um, you know, a couple months back. And her book, Another Gospel, is basically about how progressive Christianity is not Christianity. It's not the real gospel. 
and she's going to explain to her readers what's so worrisome about it. And I just think that um, all of this stuff smacks of too much naivety in my mind. And I would like to be one of the people who is attempting uh, dialogue across tribes here. And so this is an example of that. And any future conversations will be examples of that. And I also have been um, making myself available to more conservative, you know, podcast hosts and YouTubers if they'd like to have me on and have a non-debate style, uh, kind and mutually curious conversation. Um, my guess is that a lot of people are not interested in that because it would hurt the brand and it's not what they're trying to do. They're not, they're not genuinely trying to understand. They are trying to brand themselves and create a following. And that's uh, a shame. Insofar as that's true, that's sad. And I understand that people have to make a living and that I am really, I am fortunate to not have to make a, a living based on branding myself as a deconstruction crusader. Uh, and that, yeah, that economic pressure is not on me. I have a good job. And when I become a psychologist, I'll have another good job. And so this podcast doesn't need to pay all my bills. It's not my primary source of income. And that frees me up to just kind of call balls and strikes and, and just pursue what I think seems to be true. So I'm not judging people who are trying to make a living and the way to make a living in 2021 is to pick a tribe and go rah, rah, rah for your tribe. That's, that's part of it. That leads to more followers. It leads to a better book deal, which leads to better speaking engagements and more money. I get it. I understand the incentive structures. And I actually really, I don't envy people who are having to make a living or trying to make a living in that space. I think it's a very difficult time to be doing that. But I, for myself, for me and my house, uh, we shall serve mutually curious dialogue and trying not to sever all of these bounds. Because in fact, I do follow Jesus and so does Brad Jones, my guest today. He also follows Jesus. And we have a lot of different ideas about what that means. But as you'll hear, we agree on a lot of things as well. And I thought this was a fantastic conversation and I really, really enjoyed it. And I will be staying in touch with Brad after this conversation, if he'll have me. So enjoy this one. And uh, yeah, I, there's not much else to say. I hope you guys like it. Brad Jones, thank you so much, man, for joining me today. I was actually trying to track down the message from your sister-in-law, Lindsay, who connected us, and I couldn't find it. So I am coming into this conversation completely blind. All I know is the paragraph from your email that said, yes. I do have questions and concerns around progressive Christianity. I have a lot of them. I haven't wanted to burden any one person with all of these questions. And so that seemed great. I'm <laughs> burden me publicly. <laughs> so I'm excited to talk about those questions and concerns and just find some mutual understanding. Obviously, we're going to end up disagreeing on a bunch of things, but I'm excited to do so in a kind and clarifying type of a way. Obviously, listeners don't know who you are, and I also don't know who you are. So let's start by understanding you and where you're coming from, and that will probably give us some good context for these issues. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, sure. And I would guess that my sister, Lindsay, got us connected because she's my go-to progressive Christian that I always talk to, yeah. and I'm in the other camp. Like, 
I'm often pegged as the, the white male evangelical conservative. I grew up in the Presbyterian Church in America and I'm ordained in that denomination. So that's just been my growing up. And so she's been deconstructing and thinking through all these different thoughts. And it really has made me like, oh, I didn't even know people could question that. Tell me more about that. Oh, I disagree with that. Or I, I like that. I think white evangelicalism is not going through a good period in time. So I think a lot of the criticism is good. And so it's just created a lot of good conversations. But I am living in South Carolina, married. We have four kids. We actually have spent the past 10 years in North Africa doing some missions and business in an effort to serve those folks and to care for the indigenous church in North Africa. And so I work currently, we relocated to the U.S. and I'm working with a nonprofit that tries to create jobs for underserved communities overseas. And we're working in Uganda mostly right now with people who have gone through a lot of severe trauma. So I have, I think what my sister would say is an, an interest in mercy ministries and compassion for vulnerable people and also a quite conservative doctrinal bent. And so I'm really interested to talk to you and and see how all that plays out and how that interacts with progressive Christianity and all the different rabbit trails I suspect we could go down. Uh, And go down them we will. Um, Okay, so that's a really helpful start. I'll I'll just say my wife and I left a PCA church about two, two and a half years ago, but we were there for 10 years. And that's here in Seattle. And that particular church... I would say was on the left side of PCA churches. And that's primarily because of a heavy emphasis on racial reconciliation, as well as this particular church was pushing the boundaries, not of female ordination, but we had female deacons, which were grandfathered in because when our church before we were there, when they joined the PCA, they already had female deacons and they were given this pass on that. But they even did another round like within the last five years of pushing for more female deacons. So in some senses, they are, they still exist, even though we're not there, obviously. They're pushing some of the boundaries within the PCA. But for instance, I don't know how many people really actually want full female ordination. And the church as a whole is definitely not gay affirming, for instance, so that's that's where we came from. And, and we ended up leaving for reasons I've talked about before on the show. But basically, there was some conflict over whether I could do youth ministry because I myself was gay affirming and whether that would disqualify me. And in the midst of that uncertainty, I thought it's simpler to just not go forward with that then have to get removed later and explain that to the kids and all of that. And there was also a doubling down. On this particular non-affirming approach, which is the like spiritual friendship, uh, revoice conference, like gay celibacy, mixed orientation, marriage stuff, and I was like, okay, I'm starting this. Other, I'm starting this podcast where I'm basically going to be. If I stay at this church, I feel like I'm broadcasting a pirate radio station back at it, and it felt uncomfortable, and so we left. Who knows? Maybe we'll end up back there someday, but. So I actually have a fair amount of experience with the PCA, although not in the South, which I understand to be a different experience than coastal PCA churches like in New York City, Seattle, San Francisco that have a bit of a different vibe. But that's interesting. So that's so we have a little bit of shared experience there. 
And one thing that you said is that white evangelicalism is not going through a good period right now. And I think it might be good to start there because we might be able to just check off a bunch of things that we agree on that are not necessarily related to this progressive Christianity perspective and then maybe find some things that we should talk about more. So if you don't mind, can you explicate a bit more what you mean by white evangelicalism is not going through a good period right now? Yeah, sure. I'd love to pick up on some of your history and and bring us to the future chronologically. I've been really interested in the history of the Presbyterian Church and how there was this historical split between what was a big Presbyterian denomination and what happened in the 70s is basically there were people who were really excited about doing AA meetings in churches and doing community events and caring for the poor and and all sorts of social justice, mercy ministry sort of stuff. Yeah. But their doctrine was typically more liberal. And then there was people who were more conservative and they cared more about evangelism and doctrine. And it split. And I have grown up in the conservative side of it. And I just don't know why we can't get together and do both mercy ministry and doctrine and get along. So I'm really interested in this conversation because I feel like whole denominations split over us not getting along. And I wonder where the lines should be drawn. Are there good lines or not good lines? So I don't know. But I think one historical movement that happened into the 70s, 80s, and 90s was this idea of the moral majority. And Christians got really amped up that we're going to have some political power. And I think everyone was really excited when we as religious conservatives had the power. And now that we're losing the power, we I say we, I I don't really relate to the the Trump movement, but Trump has grown up as being this fighter for the remnants of what the moral majority was. And we felt, oh, we're powerless and the culture is going in a way that we don't want it to go. And so let's get this guy and he has a hammer and go fight for us. And no matter if you're a sexual assault person, we don't care, like just take over. And I've been shocked at how many Christians turn a blind eye to the wickedness of this person, Trump, and a lot of people who are connected to him because we want political power. And maybe I'm reducing that, oversimplifying the whole thing. But I think within white evangelicals, who I think it's 80% voted for Trump, even want him continue to, to be the president, they are willing to be quiet about the Capitol Hill riot sort of things that are happening and say, we just want pro-life policies. We want to protect our traditional marriage values. And we really don't care what we have to do in order to get those things. And it just seems really strange to me. And so what I think is happening in in white evangelical world is a white versus black, Republican versus Democrat. And we're not able to see parts of the Bible that speak to other things that are outside of our moral majority lens. And so I think it's really hindering the health and vitality of our faith and our community. And so that's, in my opinion, going through a bad time. And I think the millennials and the younger generation, they see it for what it is, and they're leaving the conservative churches. And so my goal is not numbers, but I think that's just a sign that they see hypocrisy. And I think that's a legitimate criticism that the evangelical church is struggling with. I think your analysis is 100% correct. Everything you just said. And I would say, so I have a few thoughts. Number one is, And you're not the first person that I've encountered this with of more theologically conservative Christians who are flabbergasted by the melding of conservative culture and Christianity that have spent a lot of time overseas. 
I mm. think that for those of us in the States, it's been a slow boil like the frog frog in the pot. And for people who have been away, I just spoke with a guy who's been a missionary in Germany for a decade. And he's a conservative guy and he just doesn't get it. He's just, what's going on with you guys over there? And I just think it's been a slow boil mm. here. And this is true of American culture more broadly, not just religion. Everything in American culture has increasingly boiled down to two sides and everything in your life now overlaps within that identity. The car you drive, the type of school you would prefer your kids to go to, the music you listen to, whether you live in an urban or rural area, like everything. Ryan Burge, my guest, recently said this, but he's not the only one. David French has been saying this, that basically it used to be or it ought to be. Pick, pick which one, that sociopolitical identity was downstream of your religion. Your religion ought to be your most cherished beliefs, closest values, your strongest values, and that where you land on political policy questions should flow downstream from that. And it's just not true in America anymore. We are currently at a place where religion mostly flows is downstream from sociopolitical identity. And so I think that's the sort of simplest explanation for the thing that you're describing. There's also a way to tie that into progressive Christianity. But maybe before I do that, I'm curious if you have any responses to that, to my analysis there. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I, I think we have returned to the United States. And the more we've gotten to know the American church, I've just been shocked that they continue to put political power before spiritual and health of the church. There's so much desire to have political control at all costs. And it really is a shock to me. Yeah. So here's a very oversimplified way of thinking about these two things, the kind of melding of Christianity and right-wing political power in the States and progressive Christianity and this recent exodus. The simplest way that I could think about it is progressive or liberal theology has been around for a couple hundred years. So Friedrich Schleiermacher is generally seen as like the grandfather of liberal Protestantism, and he's writing around the turn of the 18th century, so late 1700s, early 1800s. That has been a stream of thought that some portion of Christians have held to since then. And the way that I see that, like in, in the middle of the 20th century, when you had a, what was called a civil religion or a civic religion, these are the big mainline denominations. At some point, something like 60 plus percent of Americans are members of Methodist, Church of Christ, Episcopal, Anglican, whatever. These like these big centrist in some sense mainline denominations, those, of course, have dipped way down to under 10 percent now. And evangelicalism and similar forms exploded and took over that kind of cultural mantle. And so what's going on right now when you're saying that millennials and Gen Z are seeing the ripening of the bad fruit from the moral majority starting in the 70s, I think they're just now moving either out of Christianity altogether or they're moving to this strain of liberal theology or progressive Christianity that's always been around. It's just it wasn't as popular, especially not during the 80s and 90s when evangelicalism really became the dominant force of religion in America. So that's how I would just put those things together. And especially Trump being the clearest example, I think, of this kind of 
power grab or power-related insecurity, we might call it, whatever you want to call it. Trump is the clearest example because he's the most egregious example. Like, you might think that Ronald Reagan was callous toward the poor. I think he was. But he wasn't like an openly philandering, formerly pro-choice goon. Younger people are like, okay, this is the last straw. Like, I've already seen some cracks and I'm just out. This is insane. And so that's where I would just link the the 230-year-old tradition with what you're seeing. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. I'm interested to know the migration of younger people away from some of those mainline or evangelical churches, where they're going to land. I think that's still, the jury's still out in my mind on that. But yeah, Yeah. it'll be a new landscape in 50 years. So where most of them did land when those denominations went from 50, 60% down to under 10 is evangelical. Most of them went to more evangelical stuff. And then also we're seeing an accelerating of secularization as well. So a bunch of them also just left the church altogether. Yeah. And it'd be interesting, you can never say with any one individual person, but you got to think a lot of those people were only in those mainline denominations because it was like a normal social thing to do. It was expected of you to be a leader in the business world or fill that in however you want. And when they didn't have to do that anymore, they didn't really believe it all that much. And so it becomes a kind of a theological purifying effect that the people who really did believe it are going to end up in these other traditions that emphasize that belief more. And there's a good part of that, which is your very genuine faith is encouraged. And there's a negative part of that, which is you're going to end up with more purity tests about who really belongs as a Christian. And that makes sense of the kind of stuff that I was raised with as an evangelical about just Sunday Christians or Christmas Easter Christians aren't really Christians They are merely going through the motions, and we are the real Christians who really believe this stuff. And that can end up, first of all, it's judgmental. It goes directly against Jesus, and it has other problems as well. So that's just the macro lens as to how I see all this stuff. But I do think it's interesting to your kind of original question. Of course, you can be theologically conservative and committed to social justice. Of course you can be. It's just that it happens right now to be kind of socially radioactive. Neither side wants you in the current moment. But there's nothing inherently about those two things, right? Karl Barth was Diedrich Bonhoeffer. These are guys – Bonhoeffer's tough because he's he gets used for a lot of people's various agendas in a way that I understand to be fairly – I don't know. Unclear. I'm not a church history guy. I don't really know that. I don't want to step out of my lane there. But clearly there have been people who hold what are today considered theologically conservative beliefs and are committed to social justice. That's obviously happened and and happens. But it's, yeah, it's really radioactive right now. Yeah. I I think the, the phrase that I recently heard was Jesus cares about personal transformation and societal transformation. And I'm trying to find ways to communicate. Can't we all get involved with caring about not just our own personal piety, which I think has been the the wheelhouse of the evangelicals for so long. Can't we also care about our neighbor in more than just an evangelism sort of thing? And I've had some resistance to that idea, but I think it's so clearly in the Bible that I I would guess that a lot of evangelicals are going to come around to, we have to also value societal transformation to some degree. There's going to be lots of lines that I suspect we draw, but 
in general, we got to care more than just our own family and our own personal holiness. hundred percent. It sounds like we're in pretty much agreement about like, there's a problem here in terms of this melding of culture and this kind of political insecurity with Christianity to where you and I both are seeing issues there. So that's not going to be the stuff that concerns you specifically about progressive Christianity. So let's see if we can, let's find the stuff that is of concern. So as a progressive Christian, I also am a lot more focused on sort of this world issues, justice here and now, but sounds like you are too. You don't see a problem with that. So that's not the issue. So what are some of the areas where you're like, yeah, but what about this? I don't understand this. Yeah. I think there's lots of issues that boil down to how do we view the Bible? Yeah. So I think what's super foundational for evangelicals is we want to operate according to what the Bible says. And so when we have friction with communicating with progressive Christians or liberal theology, we often ask the question, how are you getting that from the Bible? And so I think just the way we view the Bible is so different that, like, how do we talk about sin or salvation or atonement or justification or church discipline? Or how do we get conclusions out of that? Just seems like we're from different planets. So that seems to be the crux. And then our view of God or our view of salvation or view of the church, it all flows out of how we view the Bible, I think. Again, I think you're right on there. I think that's true for Protestants in a way that it would be different for Catholics. So, for instance, Catholics have these conversations between more liberal Catholics and more traditional Catholics, and they're probably not arguing about the Bible as much. I'm sure it comes up, but it might be more about like how strict is the magisterium or teaching of the popes and the bishops. And a liberal Catholic would say, look, the church has changed its mind over time. And the conservative will say, you're not allowed to deviate from what is the current doctrinal position. But for Protestants, where it really is all the Bible, because we don't have a pope, we don't have a church magisterium that holds doctrinal sway for us. We are the frontiersmen of the Christian tradition. And so when we can't agree on what the Bible is, that's the whole game, because it is our whole game. I mean, we have the creeds. And to some degree, different denominations will use those more or less. But the creeds are they never match sort of the the status of the text itself for Protestants. So I guess I mean, I think you're right. And where would you like to (laughs) where do you want to start on the Bible? Why don't we start with just one issue and we'll unravel it. And I think we'll get a lot of it. How would and I'm not even sure if you can say progressive Christians basically believe this. So please correct me. I have all sorts of untested assumptions about progressive Christians, but let's talk about Jesus dying on the cross and atoning for sins. I assume you would understand the general evangelical position, which I would agree with, but how would progressives understand Jesus' death on the cross, atonement leading to salvation, leading to heaven? How do progressives understand it differently? I'd be interested to know how you would say that. An answer. Yeah. So you're right that progressives will not all come down on the same place on this question. So the first thing I think on the issue of atonement theories is that what it, it seems to us that a lot of uh, traditional Christians in the states, Protestants, will assume that the specific atonement theory of penal substitutionary atonement, as outlined by John Calvin, is the dominant atonement theory 
in the Bible, first of all, like that's what the Bible teaches would be number one. They would say the Bible teaches – they wouldn't even call it uh, penal substitutionary atonement. They would just say the Bible teaches atonement. So that's number one. And number two would be something like there are more than that. That's not the only atonement theory that Christians have believed. And then there's a third layer, which is then there's just whatever an individual Christian thinks about atonement. So maybe we, I can try and get to all three of those and we can see where that goes. So first of all, the progressive is going to point out the historical contingency of penal substitutionary atonement. It comes out of this very legal-minded Swiss lawyer theologian in the 16th century. So did people believe that before? And the answer is not most of them. Christus Victor or Christus Victor, no matter how you say it, was the dominant atonement theory for the first thousand years of the church. And this atonement view says that it's not that Christ is taking punishment that God would have to give to humans, substituting for that penalization, but rather that Christ enters into death to defeat death and sin and the devil. That uh, Christus Victor takes very seriously the idea that Jesus goes down to hell in between death and resurrection, that down there he like takes all these people with him because he's robbing Satan, death and sin of the last word. So it's more like a cosmic battle between Jesus and sin and death than it is. I deserve this jail sentence and Jesus is going to take the jail sentence for me. So maybe to see if you have any follow-ups or questions at that point. Yeah, I, I'd be interested. I don't know how, how detailed you want to get into some of these discussions, but if you take the, the traditional Romans road evangelism, it walks you through, you've sinned, Jesus has died, he's a justification for your sins. Like it's, Romans is a pretty legal book. I think I agree generally with what you're saying, that Jesus has defeated the devil and gone on down to hell, that sort of idea. But I also think there is a personal, uh, Jesus has laid down his life for the church. Jesus has died for us, and it's his blood that washes our sins clean. And then we have to receive his gift and and confess our faith in him. So it, it, there, there does seem to be a, a propitiation, a, a justification that's not just we get it, but it, it's a personal Jesus saving us. He's coming to to take care of our sins with his death. I wonder how you would think about some of the verses that that talk in those terms. Yeah. So I'm not myself a theologian and a, a theologian of atonement could do a much better job than I could. But one one angle is that when you say there's a personal angle to it, that we must accept it. One thing I've heard pushback on from church historians and theologians is that there's a particular way that that begins to be understood around the time of the Enlightenment, which is not long before Calvin lived and worked, that really thinks of people on an individualistic scale in a way that now we totally take for granted as modern people, but that the early church really did not take for granted, that they really thought of things more like y'all than you, like they really thought of it more collectively. So some people argue that the idea that Calvin has that like each individual soul has this destiny and, and, the, and that salvation is tied up in that basically through whether or not they are elect, whether or not Jesus's blood is their propitiation or their neighbors. And that could be a differential. 
that a lot of people see that as just like completely not making sense to the people for whom these words were originally written, written by and written for. Like a, it's placing a modern category on an ancient idea. And I would say that, for instance, in the Gospels, you have some support for an argument like that because there are these times where Jesus says your whole household is forgiven. And like, how could he do that? How can you forgive a whole household? How does Jesus know that each of the seven people in there have the right faith in him? There's also an interesting issue, which is related, which which Schleiermacher brings up around the turn of the century, the 18th century, where he says the problem also for believing that the only way to be saved from your sins is through the blood of Christ. There's a big issue with that because Jesus is forgiving all kinds of sins left and right long before he ever dies. And so I would say from my perspective, it's less that the propitiation substitution view is totally misguided and more that it has been extremely overemphasized to the detriment of other ways of understanding it that probably would have lined up more with how the early Christians thought about and received a book like Romans. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. But it sounds like you're agreeing that we should figure out what was the historical context of the Bible and really try to believe the the most verses that talk about salvation, we should align ourselves with that language. And if it's corporate, let's talk corporate. If it's individual, let's talk individual. But the Bible does dictate how we should understand atonement theories. Would you agree with that? I think I would half agree with what you just said. Uh-huh. So in order to understand the Bible, I think we should use the best methods available to us. And, and so that would include, yeah, like history and like what other documents do we have from people of that era? How did they use these words? So all the stuff that goes into rigorous translation and yeah. early church theological work. That yeah. stuff is all, I'm way into it. And I think you and I would both disagree with an approach that says, we'll just lean on our English translations and yeah. take the plain sense of American English and assume that's what Paul meant. Sure. That's, that is yeah. a silly, kind of an anti-intellectual view that it is quite common within, especially lower church evangelicalism, Protestantism. But on the other hand, where we are moving toward an eventual disagreement is that for me, I have a different perspective as to what a Christian must or should agree with as regards the Bible. And here's some language that I've found useful. I think that basically most people I talk to who would affirm some kind of biblical inerrancy, the idea that the Bible does not not really contain substantive errors, at least not on anything that its authors are proclaiming. So you might take it too far and think it's saying science, but it's not saying science. That's not that doesn't count as an error. But if it says something, if if Paul expresses a view, then that view is true. And where I've come to is I don't believe that I have to agree with everything that the biblical authors believed and expressed in the text. So that's the other half of what you said. So Yeah, we we should understand the text as well as we can for many reasons, not least of which the text is still the center of our Christian life. It's the center of our discipleship. It's the center of our worship services. For me, taking the Eucharist is massively important part of my faith and a very grounding experience for me. And I would like to know what Jesus meant. I want as much 
as I can context for really valuing that first sacrament that Jesus initiates himself before his death. Yeah, I'm interested. I, I hear so much that I think we align on, and I'm just curious to know where the differences are. Like you talked about the biblical authors. I wonder if you could tell me more about that. When you say biblical authors, are you talking about the human authors? And do you feel like their words that they put down in the Old Testament and New Testament, the words are different than the words that God wanted them to put down? Hmm. That's a good, that's a very interesting and good way to phrase the question. I think of the Bible as there's a lot of different ways to phrase this. And each of these terms is going to have different meanings to different people. But one thing, here's where it comes down to for me. Inerrancy, I think, as far as I understand it, and I think I do, there's always some point on the chronological spectrum or the chronological series of events where God ensures, supernaturally, we might say, that there are no errors, that nobody says something that is opposite of what of God's actual position or what God is like or whatever, or the mechanism of salvation. And whatever the text is actually saying, so again, not this sort of like what we might think it also says, but whatever it's actually saying, there's, a, there's some point along the way that God ensures that is without error. And so some people will say the translations may not include that. And so we still have our own issues. But before the translations, the original manuscript, that was without error. I don't think that such a moment ever occurs. So what I think we get is a text that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the people who wrote and before that, who began the verbal traditions that would be written down later, I believe that the people who did that were inspired by the Holy Spirit in the course of their life of faith with God, but that there was no point at which God ensures that what becomes scripture doesn't get anything wrong. So that's, it's a weird line to walk in some ways, I I understand, but that's what seems most likely to be true to me. Yeah. To me, that's a, a big divergence. Not that I believe evangelicals have the corner on understanding it, but I think sure. that they're at a starting point where they're like, I'm assuming that these ideas and words are from God. And so if I can figure out these words and ideas, then I'll do my best to follow what God wants from me and, right. and that will honor him. I think when you when you start saying, I'm not sure if the words we have are God's words anymore, it's hard to know what can we take as true from the Bible and what is Maybe this guy was inspired hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, but he had some phrases that, that God doesn't really love and maybe even some ideas that got, it, got in there. That just seems like, how can I trust anything in the Bible if I can't trust everything in the Bible? So it, it seems right. binary to me rather than a continuum of, oh, I'm, I'm close to inerrancy, but a good bit off. I, I, th- that's a big difference in my mind. You're right. It is a big difference. Let me motivate it a little bit. I'm curious what you'll think. So I think that that sort of either or that you just expressed, how can I trust anything in the Bible if I can't trust everything in the Bible? I think it's a very common thought that people have. And I would say probably, I guess I don't know this history well enough, but I would guess that before the scientific revolution and the enlightenment, that most Christians who could read the Bible which was not most people, 
<laughs> but if they happen to be able to, that they pretty much took it at face value. Although there are some really interesting counterexamples to that within the Jewish tradition. I don't know a ton about it, but it is really interesting to see how, for instance, rabbinic Judaism wrestled with the text and pointed out contradictions and proposed possible ways of resolving those. And that became its own kind of like separate literature that is almost scripture for Jews in certain traditions. I just think that's worth noting. Christianity didn't go that way. It might have, but it didn't. And that's its own kind of interesting question. But let me motivate it a bit. First of all, I don't think it's true that if I can't trust everything, then I can't trust anything. Because I don't think that's true anywhere else in my life. There is not a single area of my life in which I have 100% certainty other than maybe mathematics or something, which I don't cling to the certain truths of mathematics on a daily basis, even though I might technically have that level of certainty about it. But for instance, my relationship with my wife, I have a lot of evidence that she loves me and that she's committed to me and that she's not going to just walk out and leave me one day. I don't have any fear that she will do that, but I don't have certainty that she won't. And just because I can't trust every word she says is exactly the truth that she's not occasionally sometimes, you know, hedging a bit or telling me what I want to hear because she wants to move on or it's not yeah. that I don't trust anything she says. I still trust all the big stuff that she says and does and her commitment to me, her vows at our wedding, etc., because she's proven to be steadfast over an 11 and a half years of marriage and 15 years together. I think that's more what our relationship with God is actually like in the real world, that the certainty that a lot of Christians assume is actually not there. It's a vapor, but it gets, I believe it gets built up by a bunch of other people agreeing that it's there. And it, it feels very plausible because look, we all agree that this certainty is here. And I just mm. think it's not actually there and that's okay. So maybe I'll give you a chance to to chat. Yeah, I'm super interested in this conversation. And to be honest with you, I'm getting emotional and I'm not really sure why. Like, I, I think in my faith, it's always so hard to know who God is. Like you want to hear the voice of God. You want to see God's face. You want yeah. to be intimate with him. You want to walk with him. You want to honor him. And so my whole life I've struggled with just grasping at the invisible and the transcendence of God and just wanting it to be close. And I, I hope this doesn't sound condescending. I don't, I, that's not in my heart right now, but I, I think I take so much comfort in the certainty of, of the inerrancy of scripture. And it's just like the, the most tangible tactile thing that I have in my relationship with God. And, and perhaps that is a reason that you would say that I cling on to it too tightly and evangelicals have used it as a bludgeoning tool of criticism for others. And I think that's valid. But I, when, when I read a chapter, if I'm not certain that that's God's very words to me, oh, it just, my mind goes to, where is God then? Like general revelation in nature, he's present, but it, it's like you're saying, it's a vapor. I, like, I know people travel to Israel, which I really don't have much interest in that, but I think they're just trying to get close to the realness of God on earth. And yeah. so I think the Bible is that for me. And, and to, if I were to shift from how I view the Bible to what you're describing, it would just seem, it would seem like I'm not getting a letter from God to me 
personally or to us as a community personally, but it's more like secondhand testimony of who God is. And that just seems so much farther away about God's character. And and I'm like, oh, this guy says he saw God this way. This guy says he thinks God is this way, but I'm not sure if either one of them are right, or maybe they're partially right. It it would just make me sad because I already am in sense. I'm already sensitive that God seems distant. And I think to, to change this view of scripture to make it more of a human book and less of a divine book, it would just create in my heart more distance between me and God that I think would be really disappointing. Man, thank you for your honesty and your vulnerability. I actually, I think that what you're describing is quite normal. There's a few things that it makes me think of. First of all, I I don't have any desire to convince you to abandon that belief. And so I'm actually probably going to I'll push less on the arguments for that than I might have. No, but I, I, and, I <laughs> and I'm not treating you with kids gloves or anything like that. I let me motivate why I'm saying that. <laughs> because I think that I think that this stuff provides very real benefits for people. I think that look, I think there's no way to think about the history of God with God's people and conclude anything other than God is perfectly okay with God's people believing wrong things at various points in time. You just, there's no way around it, right? There are certainly things in the Hebrew Bible that Jesus changes and that, and Peter is given the vision of the cleanliness of, like God is certainly okay with meeting us where we're at. That is biblical and commonsensical, I think. And the, the goal for me is not, not merely to seek the truth, although that is a big goal of mine. That's one of the things that this show does, but it is also to have non-judgmental attitudes toward ourselves as we inevitably believe wrong things and we don't know which ones they are and towards people that we disagree with that believe things that we used to believe. Maybe we never believed them and never could believe them. It's just, it's not so simple. I think that God's approach to humanity and any other creatures that God relates to like God relates to us. It's clear that God is okay with quite a bit of change over time and difference of perspective and even content of belief. Does that make sense? The part where God changes things with Peter and things are unclean, not unclean, that part makes sense. I feel like it's kind of God's narrative that he already knew before the beginning of time. I'm not sure if that's all that you're talking about. Are you talking about like incorrect doctrinal beliefs, or I'd love you to explain it a little bit more. Yeah, it's the best way to answer that. In this limited sense, I'm just saying that the Bible itself contains teachings that supersede previous teachings. So whenever Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, inherent in that is the idea that like, at the very least, I'm going to give you guys a different interpretation of this that you have not thought of or that most of you don't hold. Here's the new one. And all I'm saying is that God created a species of being in God's image that was capable of learning through time. We see it in our own lives too. We change our beliefs about things throughout our lives. And if we believe that we are God's children at each of those points in our lives, then God's care for us is not contingent at least not entirely on correct belief. That's more what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. I would agree that God is telling a story and there's different stages of the story and new 
wisdom or revelation comes about, I would be interested to know if you think after Jesus, if we post Bible are continuing to develop new revelations and how that works out in the present time, is there any end to the newness of God teaching us or not? Yeah. So this is related to the biblical view, right? So if I thought, for instance, that everything recorded about Jesus and everything recorded by the New Testament authors was sort of the whole story or basically without error in some meaningful sense. Well, then what are the chances that I'm ever going to get something without error again? Pretty low. Mm -hmm. And how would I know? And so it's probably straight, most straightforward to just go, we're just going to stop at the Bible because we're not going to get another thing like this. But if you don't think that about the Bible anymore, and if rather you think of it as, oh, this is a record of the people who were with Christ. And this is a record of the early church fathers and some of the early church mothers as described in in Acts and elsewhere, who this is what they did and believed. And this is how they understood what had just happened with Jesus. Then it's different. And then you think more like, okay, well, I wonder what else will happen that will give us another lens on what happened with Jesus. So you get, for instance, the way that Black liberation theologians interpret Christ through the lens of the lynching tree. And they look at their current experience as their group of people is being systematically killed for their race. And they look back at Christ and they find something to interpret what's going on today through. And then certain conservative theologians will read those books and say, you are adding to an already perfect thing we have here. It doesn't need any adding. And I'm not equating you <laughs> with the white racist theologians of the sixties <laughs> don't hear me wrong, but I'm saying that those two sides of that argument are sometimes instantiated in ways like that. And yes. So for me, I don't think that the Bible is the end. I think that the Holy spirit, like one way I've talked about this is people say, if people think I have a low view of the Bible, maybe I just have a high view of the Holy spirit. That's yeah. one way of putting it. That, and, and I think slavery is a good example that no, no biblical author could have imagined a world without slavery. They just I, I believe that there's really good evidence that they just could not conceive of it. Nobody in their entire society had ever conceived of a world without slavery and they couldn't conceive of it. And now we can. And I think that's God and the Holy Spirit. And I think it is a direct product of Christians and other people, non-Christians and other traditions, applying the concepts within the text to our current situation and going, the God of the Bible does not want us to own anybody ever for perpetuity. I think about international, I've said this before on the show, international justice mission. Do you know their work? You probably do. They go into countries and they use the legal system of those countries to free people from legit ongoing slavery and they prosecute. And you could imagine a a textual literalist pulling up Peter and saying, uh, guys, look, I know you think you're doing something good here, but Peter's clear that slaves should obey their masters. And that would be something that neither you or I would support, that we would say you are misusing that verse. But I think that it lines up with this idea I'm proposing that, yeah, we figured that out later through the spirit of Christ. But it took time. And since the Bible's not this perfect document, 
about which we'll never get a replacement or something better. The phrase I like to use is it's discernment all the way down. I wish it wasn't, but I believe that life is basically discernment all the way down. And so we discern with the text, we discern science, we discern what is coming up for other people's stories that we hear and it's messy. But yeah, so that was, I probably packed too much into that answer. I apologize. No, that was great. I I think that helps me understand your perspective. And I kind of see progressive Christianity as the denomination, how you said some people might criticize you for having a lower view of scripture, but you prefer to see it as a higher view of the Holy Spirit. I think those are the balances that the different groups of Christians really are dealing with. Mm-hmm. And that is one of my big concerns with progressive Christianity is that I see, yeah, I, I always want to use phrases that you would agree with. So please <laughs> tell me what you think. But I, in an evangelical world, they use the the, the term sufficiency of scripture, all yeah. that's needed to know and believe regarding salvation and right. what pleases God, how to enjoy God. It's all in the Bible. And I, I agree with that. I don't think we need anything else in order to please God or find salvation or to understand who God is. Like it's sufficiently in that book. But I also think if we are to say no to that, it really does increase our optimism in our own ability to discern what is right and wrong or good or beautiful or bad. And we might say the Holy Spirit is helping me, but I have, I think that's a really challenging position to know this person uh, is saying they're following the Holy Spirit in a totally opposite way of this person following the Holy Spirit. And and I would guess that probably represents evangelicalism pretty well. We like the certainty, and maybe that's not a great word of the Bible, but it gives us a basis like, we really don't know what the, the Holy Spirit wants from us if, if he doesn't tell us in, in the Bible. Right. And so I, I think the, the movements that have happened post-Bible are inspired in a general sense by God. Like, so much has been learned and we have seen great people come to great realizations that we've learned from. I, I would just prefer to call that uh, the Holy Spirit is helping illuminate what is already true in the Bible. It's not some new level of revelation or a new dispensation of revelation. It's, it's just the Holy Spirit and, and the Holy Spirit does this in my life, I believe, helps me along the way to understand what's right and wrong. And I, I'm like, oh, I w- that was wrong. I had a wrong perspective on that five years ago or last week. But it's not that I got some new message that replaces or is newer or better or in any way comparative to the Bible. It's just, oh, the Holy Spirit's helping me understand the the truth of the Bible. And I think those are huge differences that I think many progressive Christians are still fairly grounded in the scripture of the Bible. But I think many other progressives and, and, and liberal theologians are even farther from what I perceived to be grounded in the Bible. And so I see that as a real problem in that I think they will make conclusions that to me dishonor God and are even promoting things that are sinful things. And so how do we determine what's right and wrong? One group would say, I'm trying my best to understand it from the Bible. And another group might say, I've moved on from the Bible and there's newer movements of the spirit in life and I'm just discerning that this is new now. It's almost two religions in a sense. Like that's basically what Islam did. They came up with a new book and a new prophet and a new way of life. How do we determine if they weren't following the spirit into a new realm of reality? I think it's just a difficult thing to do to say, we're moving on to to some new ways that the spirit is communicating to us. Yeah, it gets really complex. 
there's a couple things I'd like to respond to. So maybe just remind me if I haven't gotten back to sufficiency. So I want to make sure to get to sufficiency. You talked about how, let's say, the civil rights movement of the 60s. I don't mean to pick on slavery because it's so racially and sociopolitically charged right now. I just find it to be a helpful example for what I'm talking about. So one way we might think about it is that what Martin Luther King Jr. and other black Protestant preacher leaders of the civil rights movement did was they simply revealed what is already the true teaching of the Bible about slavery and and freedom and civil rights. I do think that there's a problem with that argument because, for instance, in the Torah, I believe it's in Leviticus, but it could be in Deuteronomy. Yahweh tells the Israelites that if they have slaves who are of Israelite descent, ethnically, that those people must be released on the year of Jubilee every seven years. Maybe the year of Jubilee is every 49 years, whatever, but they have to be released every seven years. However, if they come to own a slave that is not ethnically Israelite, then that slave may be owned as a possession to be given down to one's children. So this is permanent ownership of a slave and the differences on ethnic lines. I don't think that I can square that with Jesus. I just don't think that there's a way to take that passage and say, yes, what the God of the universe truly wanted was that Israelites would have an ethnic rule for which slaves could be owned forever, but that later God would want the civil rights movement and there to be no slaves. I, I just... Uh, that doesn't compute for me. I don't. I can't hold those two things at the same time. So I have to get rid of something. Yeah. And for me, the most straightforward thing is to get rid of the idea that the Bible represents a perfect document. Easier to say that, no, like the Holy Spirit genuinely has moved us on the issue of owning people. And that's why people like IJM are doing incredible Christian work that my wife and I regularly support with our tithe money because they represent our Christian values in a way that truly, if they were talking to Lot or whatever, if they could get a Mm. phone back to 1200 BC, the local rabbi would be like, you're crazy. Why are you trying to get them out of slavery? They're not Mm. Israelites. I I just think, I don't know how else to square that. And so, I don't know, maybe you can, if you have any response to that. Yeah, I would be interested to know what that verse is. I'm not familiar with that. And like you said, I agree with you. That doesn't sound like sound like the heart of God to me. And so I, I'm kind of suspending judgment on that even being in the Bible because it just sounds so crazy. But I'd love to <laughs> I'd love to look into it more. But I, I think you're right. We have to pick either or. We can't say we believe there's new revelation that tells us better truth, and at the same time the Bible is fully true without error. I think it has to be one or the other. And I've researched a lot of the apparent discrepancies and contradictions in the Bible, and I've never found one that I'm like, oh, wow, I can't come up with any solution to, to answer my curiosity about it. But I think I'm coming from the perspective that I want to believe that the Bible is true until I, I can't square it with something else. But I've never come across anything like that that I'm like, I can't come up with a different reason. But if you do, as soon as you, as soon as you say there's contradictions in the Bible, uh, I agree with you. I think you should, to a large degree, devalue it in the place of authority because it's no longer what we thought it was. Hmm, and that's, wow. a, that's a huge 
question that I'm not yeah. willing to But make, you're not but there. I'm definitely not there, no. Let me, <laughs> at the risk of contradicting myself earlier, let me just read to you a little bit of Leviticus 25. Here, yeah. This is the NIV. So I'm not picking and choosing my uh, translation here. No, and, and before you read it, I do want to affirm, I want to know whatever good ideas and truth, even if they hurt me or confuse me. Oh, it's like, clear, Brad. I'm like pleasantly surprised. Not that I had any reason to think less of you or anything. And I think that you saying, if you find contradictions, you should move on to a new understanding of the Bible is, I think it's incredible to hear you say that. I think a lot of people's shoulders relaxed when they heard that and they're listening that like, okay, thank you. Cause that's what a lot of us are saying is we just did find those. And so then how can we be Christians after finding those? We can either push that stuff down and basically, what's the word? What did Freud call it? When you're trying to not think about, you're pushing something down. Into repress. Your yes. We can either repress that stuff or we can look for another view of the text. And so I just found a different view of the text. But so here's, here's Leviticus 25, verse 44. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them, you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country, and they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life, but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. Uh, and then because a couple of verses earlier, it says, if your Israelites sell themselves into your slavery, don't make them slaves. They're to be treated as higher workers. They're to be released. They can work to you until the year of Jubilee. So that's a couple verses below. So there's this very clear distinction between <laughs> the slaves and, and its inherited property. It is literally what they did in the South. So it's and so if you're having that argument in 1860 and you say, look, the Bible wouldn't have this in there if it wasn't OK for humans to own other humans. You've got a pretty strong biblical argument at that point. Right. Sure. On the merits, on the face of it anyway. Yeah, I, I think the way that I would take it, and and of course I'm going to try and figure out a way that I can keep holding the Bible as inerrant, sure. but this just seems Moses or whoever is writing it, permitting the Israelites to continue to, to operate in their cultural ways. Like it, it reminds me of in the New Testament, people came to Jesus and said, Moses gave us, allowed us to give a, a divorce letter. Divorce thing, right. And, and Jesus is like, yeah, but that was never my intent. I, I wanted male and female to be one flesh and nobody to ever separate them. And so I would take it that way. I don't think this reflects the heart of God. I think this was Moses permitting people to do what they wanted to do. And Jesus even said, it's because they had a hardness of heart that they were operating in this way. So I wouldn't say this is on the same level as God commanding this behavior, which I think would be terrible, but I think it's Moses permitting. And and Moses probably didn't think it was bad. It seems like a lot of people in the Old Testament allowed a lot of terrible things to happen. Right. Yeah. I w- there might be a middle position on that question, but I, you did tee me up there with the word command. And so apologies no, for fine. jumping at it, but we then have something like the Canaanite conquest mm-hmm. where God very straightforwardly does command the Israelites to kill every man, woman, and child that lives in the land yeah. and to do that because they live there. Basically, yeah. that's the reason. And the reason I say that that's the reason, because I know that people will give a rejoinder. No, God had them do that because they were wicked. 
But the thing is, the text is full of other people who are wicked that don't live in Canaan that God does not tell them to kill. Right. So it's, and that's a direct command. And that was actually for me, when people talk about what started your deconstruction. That yeah. was the issue for me when I was in college was the Canaanite texts. And I thought, okay, I've got something really, really sticky to work through here. Yeah. And skipping a bunch of steps where eventually that left me was like, oh, okay, this thing's not inerrant. It just isn't. I don't think it is. And so I need another way. But the the type of resistance you're giving here to making that move is completely rational in my mind. You would be <laughs> rethinking vast parts of your faith and life and maybe even your commitment as an ordained pastor or missionary aid worker. Like, yes, this is the other thing I wanted to say earlier, and this is a good place to put it. And I don't anticipate any pushback from you. Most Christians who go through this kind of deconstruction don't choose it. And it is violent. And if they're pastors, especially, there are all these countervailing forces to not give into it because it's your job. It's how you pay for your kids' clothes and food. It's it's your status in your community. And so in that sense, I really love the clarity with which you are setting up the stakes, because I think a lot of people will hear in your description of that a very accurate look at what the stakes were for them. As they started thinking through this, most listeners to this show have gone through some version of that. And yeah, I appreciate it's as we disagree on this, I'm really appreciating how clearly you see a lot of this from the human angle and the sort of what else falls when this falls an angle. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think broadly, my biggest concern with progressive Christianity is that I think the view of God is so much different. And that's my big concern. Like I, I remember uh, J.I. Packer just passed away. I don't know what it was a year ago or something. And one of his final encouragements to the church was glorify Jesus Christ or something. I thought it was so sweet. And I think by understanding clearly who God is, we're going to be able to glorify him the most. If he says do A, B, and C, as we follow him and do what God wants, we're honoring him. So I think if we can understand the Bible correctly, it will lead, in my opinion, to understanding who God is correctly, which will lead to him being honored. And I think when we start moving some of the pieces around and saying this part of the Bible isn't God, it changes the character of God, at least in our perception of him. And I think Certainly. that's it would be bad if my mom was a certain way. And, and everyone's talking about her like, oh, she's not that way. She's this way. It dishonors her. It's, it's, it, it makes me want to fight sometimes with, if someone's talking about God, who I, I think is even more right. precious than my mom. Like, oh, he's not that way. He doesn't want that. Sometimes right. we say the things that are good. Someone else is saying they're bad. And, and so it really flips things upside down. And it really starts with this issue of, is the Bible reliable to show us what God wants or not? I am really excited about the most recent patron exclusive episode, which just went up yesterday. I'm so excited about it that I'm going to include a clip here because there was a bit in my conversation with Trans Regret Snoopy, uh, her anonymous moniker, where we just got into stuff that's so cool that I thought I got to share this with everybody. So even if you're not a patron and you can't listen to this whole episode, you can hopefully enjoy this little clip. Uh, and if you're still on the fence, maybe this will convince you to become a patron. If you are a patron, I really recommend listening to this conversation. 
um, especially if you found last week's episode interesting. Uh, patrons get access to at least two exclusive episodes per month. This is one of those for the month of April, uh, as well as the Facebook group, which is only for patrons. So here's that clip from Trans Regret Snoopy and myself. Language is not going to be great for this. <laughs> Let's just acknowledge <laughs> that, that like words are going to be imperfect tools here. But but to the extent that you can describe it, like what's the what part of you had to sort of realize, come to terms with, be willing to change to like admit that you're trans and that you you had to go through this thing. And then what's the part of you that was like, I need to accept Christ. I need to live into this. Like, can you compare and contrast those? I think that the, the realization of like, so a lot of people in some way, like always know that they're trans in some way or another, but mm -hmm. the, the realization that transition is uh, not only a possibility, but a necessity, I think comes out of the, um, the need for growth with respect to self-love, uh, to learning to love yourself, learning to accept yourself, uh, learning to accept your body or do what you can to change your body. Um, and that's, again, language is going to be hard for this, right? Because uh, there's, there's these combating narratives in transness where it's like, well, I was always trans. And, mm -hmm. and some people believe that you don't even have to take any medical measures to to be the gender that you believe that you are. You can just, you yeah. know, if you're, if you're a man with a beard uh, and you transition socially, now you're a woman with a beard. And that is a different argument for a different time and a different right. conversation. But ultimately I think it comes down to this notion of um, changing yourself in an, in order to come to, to, to come to peace with yourself, to learn to love yourself. And in like a different way, um, finding God, uh, reconnecting with God, learning to love Jesus and the, and the message of, um, of the gospel is like learning to love others in the same way that you learn to love yourself through transition. Wow. You come to peace with the fact that the world may not be what you want it to be at all times, but that just like your body was not irredeemable or unchangeable, the world is also not irredeemable and unchangeable. It's actually beautiful because it's God's creation. And as much as we've screwed it up in, in a number of ways, it's, um, it has beautiful things about it and the potential to, um, to really enrich us. So I don't know, in a way it's like an internal external, obviously there's a lot of parts of becoming Christian that are deeply internal that are not at all about other people. Right. And not at all about, changing the world or loving the world or experiencing the world or connecting with people at all. Um, so in that way, that language kind of breaks down and I'm not sure that it's a, a, a great metaphor, but um, it definitely is about sort of coming to peace, not just with your, your body and yourself in, in transition, you know, as far as being transsexual or transgender or whatever, but coming to peace with yourself as part of God's creation, as part of the, the world at large. So to become a patron, head to patreon.com slash Dan Koch. There is a link for that in the show notes. And now we'll get back to my conversation with Brad Jones about his various concerns about progressive Christianity. 
so this is so interesting. In a sense, though, it, it begs the question, right? So let's assume that I'm right and you're wrong about the Bible. In that case, it's you who are saying wrong things about God. Now yeah, let's exactly. assume that you're right and I'm wrong. Well, in that case, it's me that's saying wrong things about God. Yeah. The, the very question is that question. Who sure. is saying the right things about God? Is the Bible an inerrant document by which we can base it? And so if I have reason to believe that it's not, as you said earlier, then I got to follow that because, sure. in fact, I do agree with you that we should understand God as well as we can in order to glorify God. Yeah. And that what's happened for me and so many others is that we've tried to do that within those guardrails of inerrancy and it doesn't add up. And sure. that to us is a flag that we need to look outside inerrancy so that we can describe God and yeah. understand God and then therefore follow God. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. One of my concerns with progressive Christianity is the very inclusive nature of the group, which in mm -hmm. some ways is good. I, I think it reflects the centrality of love and compassion in the Bible. Yeah. But I think progressive Christians should be more critical if they really believe evangelicals are misrepresenting the character of God. Oh my gosh, you, you guys should really speak up for our own good and for the honor of God. Like I would think less of you if you don't criticize <laughs> people who are, are saying things that you think are contrary to the real nature of God. That of course happens, right? There's, there are all the theological journals and books published and conferences that people can go to. But to go all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, we are now sociopolitically siloed in a way that lines up with our theological siloing. And so nobody at a Southern Baptist church goes to the American Academy of Religion conference. Like they might go to the Society for Biblical Literature adjoining one and go to the few things that, that they like or whatever. But yeah. the type of people who are really crossing these lines and discussing much as we are doing right now is just vanishingly few. There's just so yeah. few people doing it. Yeah. And so I would say it's and there. And if you look at the podcast listings, right, of Christianity within Apple Podcasts or something, about 10 percent of them are more or less progressive in the top 200. They're presenting some alternative to the standard. And so it, it's it seems to be more of an issue of like platforms and reach not overlapping than it is a question of will yeah. on behalf of the people who hold the views. It, it's more yeah. just like what I hear and read is largely a combination and a, a consequence of my personal groups and the algorithms of the major social media companies. Yeah. That's really how I end up seeing what I see and reading what I read it is determined mostly by that. So more stuff exists out there than I am taking in or you are taking in, of course. Yeah. But it, can I talk about that sufficiency thing before oh, we yeah, get too please. far away? This is one of the interesting issues around talks about inerrancy is this idea of – it's sometimes called infallibility so this is technically the Roman Catholic view is that the Bible is not inerrant, but it is infallible for issues of faith and salvation. So infallibility in that sense and sufficiency are linked. So, for instance, you could ask the question, if I want to become a Christian and follow God in the Christian tradition, do I need something more than the Bible? Do I need something extra that the Bible won't give me? Yeah. I would say, no, you don't. Of course, you don't need anything extra. You have plenty within here to follow Christ. So the Bible is totally sufficient in issues of salvation and the basic Christian life. You can just pick that thing up, 
but you could also pick that thing up and read it in a way that would give you a false impression of what God is like. Let's say you skip the Gospels altogether and you, you go straight to the Canaanite conquest, you know, pick your whatever. There are things in there that that push against internal cohesion, but that don't affect sufficiency. Does that make sense? Uh, how would it not affect sufficiency? Because something can contain more. The Bible contains more than the stuff necessary for a salvific relationship with God. It also contains other stuff that is not related to salvation. For instance, uh, Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes are not particularly related to the salvific process of becoming a Christian, but they're in the Bible. Revelation has very little to do with salvation, other than maybe you, you might talk about the final visions of judgment and stuff is related, but you don't ever need to read Revelation to become a Christian. In fact, a lot of People thought it shouldn't be in the canon, but it made it in. That's what I mean. There's just a lot more than the yeah. stuff necessary for a salvific relationship with God. But that mm-hmm. stuff is all in there, and you don't need – you don't also need the Pope. You don't also need my podcast. You don't also need modern science. You don't need that stuff. Anything you need is in there. It's in the text. It's sufficient. So I would affirm sufficiency in that sense. But you don't believe it's sufficient – to give you a, a complete picture of who God is. I no, not only do I not believe that, I don't think most Christians have believed that. Sure. Catholics don't believe that, Eastern Orthodox don't believe that. So already we're at 35% or something of worldwide Christians who might believe that. I you, think that Do you mean the, in their doctrine or like in practical Yeah, in their official doctrine, right? So you could have individual Catholics who are functionally evangelicals or something like that. And you can have evangelicals who are functionally Episcopals or atheists or agnostics. I'm just saying in terms of the official pronouncements, neither the Catholic Church nor the Orthodox churches would affirm the kind of inerrancy that you would affirm, nor would they say that the Bible is the only thing. They think you need to be in relationship with the true church, for instance. That uh, we're very broad brush here. I also don't agree with with them on that for what that's worth. I'm just saying it's the... We sometimes have an illusion of an unbroken traditional agreement on this stuff from the early church to today that's not accurate if you move outside of certain streams of Protestantism. Are you saying that you believe the official Catholic position and Orthodox position is that there are errors included in the Bible? The So you can look this up and somebody could write me in if I'm wrong, but they do not hold to the type of inerrancy that we're talking about. They hold to infallibility of the Bible, and I believe the statement is specifically about stuff needed for salvation and the Christian life. I mean, I could take a second and do some Googling. No, it, it's all right. I, I, but I would sense that progressive Christians have gone farther than Catholics or Orthodox to say that there are errors included. I, don't, I wouldn't want to allow the, the argument that Catholics and Orthodox also don't believe in inerrancy. And so who really should sort of argument? I don't think that's accurate. Yeah. The argument I'm making is not that I'm in line with the vast majority of Catholics and Orthodox over time. I don't mean to say that. That's not true. I'm sure that the average believer through most of time that was literate, and that's just a big asterisk. Protestantism doesn't even really come around until people become literate. 
This is an interesting wrench, but that most literate Christians have probably believed closer to what you believe than what I believe. So I'm don't get me wrong. Yeah. But that some of what is assumed by inerrancy in the dialogue within Protestants is not true of official Catholic and Orthodox doctrine. That's all yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'm not so concerned about uh, Catholics and, and Eastern Orthodox, but just as followers of Jesus, is it appropriate for us to look at the scripture and believe that the words are true and that it's sufficient for our life and godliness and salvation? And I think since the writings, even Peter talked about it like, oh, these are scripture. These are authoritative. This is God's words to us. Like, I think that's been far and away the majority opinion forever. Yeah. And to some degree, to a very significant degree, what Schleiermacher and people after him are saying is, look, we've got new ways of learning about the world that we didn't used to have. And what a progressive Christian would say is that our interpretation of the Bible ought to be challenged by or framed by or informed by those other ways that we have of learning about God's creation and that we should not make assumptions about the text that color the way we interpret the fossil record, for instance, that actually what's more honoring to God is to take the fossil record as it is even if that challenges some things that we thought we understood from the text, that would be my position that it's actually the, the, in the spirit of Christian humility, we should be willing to set aside our traditional ways of understanding the text, given what God is revealing to us through science, through natural law, through, you know, all these things, however you want to frame it, general revelation usually is a good bucket term for it. But when general revelation reaches a certain point of probabilistic certainty, a certain amount of evidence, and again, it's always discernment. It's never, it's usually not black and white. Like for instance, I just think that I'll use an easy example. Somebody who claims that the text teaches that the universe is 6,000 years old, I just think is out over their skis. That is not honoring to God to claim that it is actually, it is delighting in ignorance of what really God has revealed through our ability to use science to look at a regular and law-like universe that God created. And so I guess I'm, by using that example, I'm, I may be skewing us off topic. I don't mean to do that. I'll give you a chance to respond. No, that's that's fine. It makes me wonder, and I'd love your opinion on this. Do you think that progressive Christians, by and large, are just stumbling into the ideas of inerrancy and sufficiency and, and not liking to think that the Bible is inerrant. You mean stumbling into the ideas of non-inerrancy? Yeah, like, or, or do you think that what seems to be a second opinion or second perspective from my way of looking at it is there are certain trigger points, hell or LGBTQ issues, right. and then they read those into the Bible and like, I choose my view of this over the clear reading of scripture. Does that yeah, uh, seem like I see your question. I would say there's a big divide, which is how do you end up a progressive Christian? So yeah. one person might end up a progressive Christian by being raised a progressive Christian. Trip Fuller, who hosts the Homebrewed Christianity podcast and is a good friend of mine, was raised by Baptist church planners who were edged out during the kind of fundamentalist takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention. Hmm. 
And then I think they became American Baptist or, you know, something like that. But he was basically raised by a church planting, theological, liberal pastor dad. Mm. And so he's always been a progressive Christian ever since he was a Christian. I was raised evangelical in a kind of a, a moderate California version. So I was raised to be quite a bit more conservative than I am now, but I was not raised to be a fundamentalist. And so I have moved and I did stumble into non inerrancy. Although it wasn't less of a stumble and more of like I was jet fuel propelled by the massive amount of anxiety and uncertainty I felt, which harkens back to some of your descriptions of what it would be like for you if you went down that road. Having gone down that road, it is like that. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really uncomfortable. And and I was frantic. I was I was grasping for branches to grab on as I fell basically. But I have found some very robust limbs on which to to rest through that process. And the falling speed has decreased significantly to to almost nothing. Now, so in the technical answer to your question, there are different ways by which people come to it. The other half of your question is about how there's a kind of social lubrication maybe of moral expectations and moral issues around some of the stuff that progressives point out as a difference with more traditional Christians like hell, LGBTQ inclusion, et cetera. Maybe female mm. ordination yeah. is another example. And I think that, yeah, the, it's absolutely true that the winds of culture have changed direction on some of those issues. Let's talk about hell because that's a more interesting one maybe than gay inclusion. Although I'll just say the whiplash that a lot of traditional people feel around public opinion on that issue is very real because it is the fastest recorded instance of public opinion shifting on a major policy issue in American history. Hmm. In eight years, we went from 40% to 60% approval. And that is just unheard of. And that's its own interesting thing to look at. But I think hell's a little bit easier for me to answer your question with. So it is true that People find hell distasteful and it's less of a whiplash thing. That's probably been more of a slow rise than LGBTQ stuff. But I think it's also true that the view of eternal conscious torment is not really supported by the Bible and is, in my view, completely incoherent morally with the God of the Bible. And the other two options, annihilationism, also known as conditional immortality and universal reconciliation, are the only two that are at least at all plausible, basically, to describe God, in my view. And so whether it became fashionable to dislike hell is, to me, beside the point, I would say good, because this was always a bad argument to begin with. And if more people can see that, that's better, because God is not a God of eternal conscious torment for finite beings. I I can't square that with really anything in the text other than a handful of passages that sometimes seem to teach something like that or that uh, imply something like that. But again, without an inerrant text, I don't need to I don't need to say they necessarily describe something real and ongoing. I know that you wouldn't make that move, but that is a move that I can make based on other stuff that I think is plausible anyway. So Mm. that's hell as an example. What do you think about that? Yeah, I have a hard time getting my bearings if we imagine deconstructing so much of the the Bible as we 
understand it in the evangelical world. Like it's hard to even know what is true or not. It seems like postmodernism joining with the church and then throwing out objective reality and then just saying, what do we believe is moral? And then, then we kind of overlay that onto God, which seems backwards to me. Can I pop in for just a quick second on that? Sure. It's, it's not the taking out of objective truth. And this is a common, a common claim or worry. It's more just saying that objective truth is harder to find than we thought it was. That's my position. I'm, I'm a realist in the philosophical tradition. I believe that truth is real, that there is a set of affairs yeah. But that it's not as easy to think to figure out what that is than I used to think it was. Yeah. But it's not it's not relative truth. Okay. I don't believe it's whatever you think it is. I just think that conservatives and liberals alike have a significantly harder time knowing that they know something than I used to think. So we can get back to I don't mean to go away from hell, but yeah, let's say there's a progressive Christian group. Is there ever discipline or correction within that group to say, actually, you're believing something that's not aligned with objective reality. Like you're wrong. Like, is there ever that sense? I, I don't sense. I, I've never heard of progressive Christians ever correcting or criticizing or disciplining one another in Christian love. It would depend probably uh, denomination to denomination, but I'm sure that the Episcopal Church in America and United Methodists and Church of Christ and all these denominations have disciplinary policies. They have, I'm sure they have disqualifying actions for people who are pastors. They would be a different list, right? So for instance, a UCC church would not discipline a pastor for performing a gay wedding, but the SBC would remove them, remove their ordination. So there would be different things. And in fact, this is an area of great interest to me personally because my own research is around religious and spiritual abuse. And so I will know a lot more about this in a year or two, but I plan on diving quite a bit into what safeguards there are, for instance, around narcissistic and abusive pastors in yeah. these various groups. And so one one counterbalance is it might be true that like, well, and especially I think that you're thinking of Unitarian Universalists maybe who really have almost no doctrine at all yeah. and really are just trying to be maximally open. Yeah. And I, I really understand where they're coming from. And there are days where I feel more like that than like a Christian. Yeah. If people could debate if that would be considered a Christian group or not, but back to the spiritual abuse thing. So, it might be true that an Episcopal church is being pretty lax with, let's say, a, a priest who cheated on his wife, something like that. And they really should be harder on that. And I might look at that and go, yeah, they, they should be like that. That actually should be disqualifying. And I'm, this is, I'm just making up an example. I have no idea what the Episcopal church does about cheating clergy. But let's just say they did that. But I could also look at an ind uh, <laughs> independent fundamental Baptist church and say, there is no way to get this guy out of power mm. who has 10 complaints against him from women or children or whatever, because he's got the eldership wrapped around his finger and yeah. there's just nothing. So in that sense, I would just say, sure, that might be a problem, but there's an analogous problem on the other hand of the spectrum. Yeah. And I, I just would want, I would want all of those, each denomination, each church structure to have the appropriate structures in place to weed out bad actors, basically. Yeah. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think uh, if we focus on evangelicalism, the abuse of power is widespread, whether they neglect doing healthy correction or they do it overboard or it's done by one person based on his own opinions. Right. It's terrible. I, I think it, it, as we talk about hell, I, I sense that progressive Christians have this view that retributive doing any sort of consequences on anything that could be construed as wicked or concluded as wicked is not a good thing. Like we should just affirm one another, include one another and allow for differences. And so I think hell in its very essence, in my opinion, is is God saying there are lines that we draw and some people have gone over that line and received consequences. So I think church discipline is similar in my view as hell in that as evangelicals, we believe that there are certain things that are, are sinful and we all do them. And the church in mercy is supposed to help us all to, to repent and move towards obeying Jesus and worshiping Jesus and living that out. But when we don't, it's actually good and healthy and loving for there to be consequences. And hell is just God saying the same thing. I'm going to correct you. I'm going to give consequences. But certain times you have gone beyond what is permissible and God sees that as justice and he values justice. I think hell is just the fruit, but the root of the whole conversation, I think, is do we as Christians believe that there are some things that are just so bad that there should be consequences, even severe consequences? And my sense is that the flavor of progressive Christianity is very much to avoid correction, judgment within the church, or calling people out on wickedness. And I think that seems to be anti-Bible if it's taken to the extreme of avoiding confrontation for the sake of the vibrancy of the church. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be comfortable saying that people downplay hell because they want to avoid conflict. I just, I don't know people's personal motivations. But what I would say is having read a lot of universalist theologians, very few of them have this kind of view of la-di-da, right? There are multiple sort of ways of envisioning how reconciliation eventually becomes universal. And of course, they'll use Paul's language of Christ reconciling all things to himself. So there are visions about how that's done. Some of them have a kind of a purgatory type model. And, you know, N.T. Wright, even, for instance, who is not a universalist, as far as I understand, does talk about that he thinks that the New Testament teaches that there is like sort of a middle place that when when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, that's not heaven, that the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth are not here yet. And so there's something else where that guy's hanging out in the meantime. And so those kind of thinkers would say, oh, there are absolutely consequences. The issue is just that the consequences are not eternal and conscious, because that is exactly where the idea of justice goes completely off the rails. There's just, there's no version of justice in any human language or society that says it is just to punish someone infinitely for something that they did a finite number of times. So there are forms of purgatory type punitive justice, you know, whatever retribution or consequences. There are versions of like annihilationism where it's, look, if you don't choose God, then you cease to exist. And if you do choose God, then you continue to exist with God. There's the great divorce. C.S. Lewis's version where 
People can move in between and they continue making choices. But there's just the eternal conscious torment model, which uh, a lot of it, I think, comes more from Dante than the Bible, is just unsquareable in its eternality, right? So if someone ceases to exist, that is an eternal punishment, but it's not eternal conscious torture, right? That's really where the rub is for almost everyone that I've talked to and read on this issue. It's not so much we don't want to say who's in and out, although I think that's a very reasonable position for a Christian to take that I don't know who's saved and who's not. And Jesus gives us some indication in the sheep and goats parable that the external cues of who is on his side are, are not necessarily all that accurate, but more about this eternal punishment bit is so morally heinous. And since it's not the only interpretation of scripture, why land on it? Just go with one of the other interpretations. Well, I I think one reason that seems like a very good reason why we would land on anything is we think that reading the Bible, this is is the clearest conclusion to land on. And we may disagree that is the case, but that's a great reason. Like, Okay, that's true. I actually think the clearest reading of the text is annihilationism. So I, as a non-inerrantist universalist, if I was going on the text, I would be an annihilationist. I think yeah. almost all the language in the New Testament is extinguishing language. It's yeah. burnt up. It is cast into the lake of fire and destroyed. There are only a handful of passages that have a kind of an ongoing gnashing of teeth, whatever kind of a thing. Most of it, the preponderance of the verses are like, this thing is over. It's done. It ends. So that would be my rejoinder on the textual question. Yeah. Yeah. I think I care less about the conclusion and more about the process. I, Mm. I don't think annihilation is a bad conclusion. And I would acknowledge that the the essence of hell is not one of the top clearest doctrines in the Bible. Right. Uh, So we shouldn't be super passionate about whatever we conclude, but I would be interested to hear you talk about from your perspective as a progressive Christian, who do you believe will, will go to whatever word you want to use hell or destruction or be annihilated and speak about it. Like this is an underbelly of the Christian faith in general, uh, but I think progressive Christians from my perspective have the hardest time talking about it. Describe who God would allow to be destroyed. Like what is the the progressive Christian perspective on that idea in general? So I'm happy to answer that, but I really don't speak for, I don't know, the majority of progressive Christians on this issue. It's a topic I've thought about a lot. And a lot of my answer is idiosyncratic to me. So I'm happy to give you my take, but I, I don't think you can universalize what I'm about to say too far out. So, okay, so this, I'm going to try and be as concise as possible because this gets into a whole lot of my (laughs) own personal theological reasoning. Yeah. So it's very hard to know where to start. Okay. I don't believe that God would ever torture anyone forever. I, I don't think that God would ever send any of God's creatures to eternal conscious torment under any circumstances. Because I don't think that there's anything a human being could possibly ever do to warrant that Mm -hmm. in any kind of vision of what is just. I think that if God does send anyone to hell forever, eternal conscious torment, then God is not just. And we have a reason to believe that God is actually not like the God we think that God is. So that's the first bit. 
Now, in terms of not being saved, not going to heaven or whatever you want to call it, that's a lot more complicated. Did you want to do you have any follow ups on the first bit? Yeah, I, I think it's easier for us to say I don't believe in eternal conscious torment, but I, I sense that. And, and this is one of my central concerns with progressive Christians in general. And, and so I know you don't represent all of them, but how do progressive Christians or you personally, if that's easier, understand God allowing or permitting or orchestrating anybody to not go to heaven? That seems like retributive justice. That seems like a consequence that's so severe. That's a terrible thing. Even if you are destroyed and you don't experience it for more than a second, you're missing out on such a great thing. Right. Like, like how do progressive Christians or you That's think ultimately that? why I'm not an annihilationist. I, I do think that that traditional idea that like those who figure it out in life get the biggest blessing ever and everyone else just ceases to exist. I That doesn't quite square with me for kind of reasons that you're saying. Where I'm actually at is that I, per, and this is where it gets idiosyncratic. I personally have a very hard time believing or affirming things that I can't wrap my mind around. I recognize that. And I recognize too that eternal or whatever next life destinations for human beings or human souls or whatever is a pretty good candidate for the kind of thing that I'm likely not to be able to get my head around (laughs) by its very nature. So even the biblical language around heaven and the new Jerusalem and all that stuff is super metaphorical. John explicitly says in Revelation, like, it's not this, but I'll write it as best as I can. Like, language can't match the vision that he gets. So all this stuff is beyond our ken in some significant way. But I recognize that I have a particular hard time with that. That if I can't conceptualize something, I just, I might abstractly say, yeah, I believe that in some general sense, but I don't, I can't work myself up about it if I can't imagine it. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. I can't get stoked about it, right? Yeah. So I'm a universalist in the sense that I think that if there's something like the traditional view of there is basically eternal bliss with God, whatever that means that probably there is some, in order for God to be just, this world is not just. So for things to end up just in the end, that I'm very open to there being some sort of purgative process by which we pay for our sins. The, in whatever way makes the most sense to an all loving God. It's also true though, that we have things like the parable of the late workers, right? So Jesus says, there were a bunch of workers who worked all day and then a couple people came just for the last hour and they got paid the same and everybody who was there all day was angry. But Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like, that God's mercy is not doled out on merit. So I could see a compelling argument that, yeah, God does just save people that you don't think should be saved. And that's kind of part of being human is that you don't think they should be. And that's just not what the kingdom of heaven is like. And you just don't get it because you're a human and God sees the bigger picture. So that could be true. Where I tend to personally land is that, I don't know, I hope that there is an afterlife. I hope it more than anything else. This life is just clearly not just. And any Christian attempt 
to say that this world is just, to me, ends up looking like the prosperity gospel. Mm -hmm. There's some kind of formula. And if we just understand the formula, then we see that it is really just. And all the people with faith get the good things. And it's no, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Prosperity gospel is bullshit. It is a fiction that is very appealing to human beings. So that does that even totally answer your question? I feel like it gets really convoluted for me personally. And again, that's not necessarily universalizable. Yeah, no, I think that makes total sense. And I think part of my concern is trying to unweave the ball of yarn and and take some of these ideas to their logical conclusion. It it seems as if you take out some of the thorns and, and hard parts of the Bible you get a universalism, you get everybody wins. And that makes total sense. And that's, I think, what I'm concerned about. I I, I read a Bible that, to me, God chooses and God punishes. And there's a lot of thorny parts to what who God is. If I were to create a God, it would not be who God is. I'll be reading through the Bible. I'm like, oh, wow, what in the world, God? How does that exist? But I think what I feel passionate about it is to say, I don't understand God completely. He's higher than me. He's more complicated than me. And he's doing things that I think are mean or bad or not inclusive. And I don't know why he does those things. And so I think it's interesting to have a conversation with you because you're saying some people come to the conclusion, well, just don't believe those parts or, or reinterpret those parts, deconstruct those parts and that is one solution that that will help out with the, the cognitive dissonance that happens between who we want God to be or think he should be compared to what we're reading in the Bible. But I think I'm still affirmed with trusting in the God who I see in the Bible, even when it's not the person I want to be. And I'm, I even think of the, the time when Nicodemus came to Jesus and Nicodemus is this like Pharisee who is trying to figure out his own faith and going on this journey that I think you and I are discussing in our talk. And he's, Jesus, what's up? Who are you? What's going on? And I, and that's where in John 3, Jesus says, the famous John 3, 16, I, the Father has loved you guys, all the world so much that he sent me. And if you believe in me, Jesus, you will not perish, but have life. And so he offers this two-pathway uh, to the future. And it, and if that wasn't true, I don't know why he would say it. So it, it just seems so plain to me. It's not just this verse. There's so many where it's like, I'm going to separate the, the wheat and the chaff. I'm going to separate sheep and the goats. And you have to profess faith in Jesus. You have to receive the forgiveness in Jesus. What's the point of Jesus even coming to the planet to die if there's not some sort of salvation that he's procuring for certain people. Why does he talk about hell? Why does he talk about perishing? Why why does he separate sheep and goats? If none of that matters, there would have been such an easier way for Jesus to communicate. He could have just said, guys, you all get in. I'm I'm defeating the devil. You all get in. But he didn't say that. And, And part of me wishes that he said that. Wouldn't it be great if we could just say to everybody, we're all going to heaven one day. But I think I I have two choices. I can either say, the Bible's wrong, or I can say my feelings of desiring for everybody to be saved are not God's plan. But I can't have it both ways. And I think you're intellectually honest by saying I have to go down the the universalist route in order to to make this all stuff make sense. And I think I'm just not there. And I, I think I really resonate with the evangelical position that says 
when Jesus says you, you have to believe to not perish and then you get eternal life, just like he was telling Nicodemus, that's true. And I'm not saying any of us should jump up and down about people perishing, but I, at the end of the day, I want to follow the God as he communicates himself. And I just, I'm doing my best as feeble-minded as I am to understand it. And I'm sure there's wrong parts about it, but as I read the Bible, it just seems like Jesus is communicating hell and heaven. And, and I don't know the details about what that is, but it doesn't seem like he's communicating everyone goes to heaven. He could have done it a lot better if he wanted to communicate that. Yeah. Okay. So I've got, I have two thoughts and then I'll give you the last word as we wrap up since you are the guest in my, on my platform <laughs> and I'm not here to dominate anybody. The first is kind of quickly more to the second half of what you said, as is probably obvious, I don't interpret the words of Jesus in John and the other gospels as just like straightforward God speaking to me because I don't believe it's inerrant. And so it brings in a much more complicated process of comparing the gospels to each other. And what is John primarily focused on and what were Mark, Luke and Matthew primarily focused on and why do they, you know, it's this, it's a big complicated scholarly conversation with a lot of discernment and a lot of uncertainty about why certain things are emphasized by certain gospel writers and other New Testament writers over other things. And so I'm, I don't have quite that same sort of need to be, to take it at face value. Yeah. I'll just say that because that affects a lot of the stuff that you just brought up. Yeah. But the main point I want to make is this, and, and, and it's a good place for me to end. There is a value. And, and I think that some liberals will not say this, but I think there is a value in the posture that you laid out of like, I just, I have to submit to God's above me. I might have a bunch of intuitions, but that doesn't mean that they're right. And there's a bunch of things I don't understand. And I think there's a real value to that posture. There's a humility in that, that I think that God often uses in our faith lives. But where I want to disagree, I think that I want to say that's separate from the question of do these things that are all in the Bible fit together with each other? So the reason I'm not an inerrantist is not because that the Bible contradicts what I want to be true about God. It's that I think the Bible contradicts itself about God and claims competing things that don't go together. And so therefore I got to drop inerrancy. And now I have to figure out what I do after that. Because in fact, the God that I really want to believe in is the father in the prodigal son. That's the God I want. That where I get the language for the God that I want is in the Bible. It's just that the Bible also has this other language that describes a different God. And the difference between us in one sense is that you feel required to put those together and make them fit together. And I don't feel that way. I feel freed up from that obligation. And it seems more likely to me that some of the pictures in the Bible are the more accurate ones over the other ones. And that's what Christ leads us to. And I can never definitively prove that, of course, but that seems more likely to me. But the main thing is just that like, what I want God to be, I'm not getting that from HBO or Hollywood. I'm getting it from the prodigal son. I'm getting it from the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. Like I'm getting it from the Sermon on the Mount. And yeah, I want that to really be the God, not 
the prodigal son God with a big asterisk, but also chooses eternal damnation for a bunch of his creatures or but also whatever. I just want to differentiate. Am I willing to submit to God? Yes or no. And some people aren't. You're right. And a lot of those people can hide behind progressive Christianity, although I would guess that most of those people just leave the faith. They don't stay Mm. Christians. If they don't want to submit to God, they probably just don't believe and aren't Christians. Separate that out from the things that the Bible teaches. Are they mutually coherent or not? And that's the question of inerrancy. So that's my last word. And I'm not and I'm done. And you can respond and then we'll call it good. No, that's great, Dan. I've loved being able to talk with you. And I think you're doing such a unique thing here that you're trying to get people together who disagree for the hope of we're all going to get better from that discussion. So I think that's so good. And I have just enjoyed hearing your perspective on this. And I think we, we find such alignment to say, oh, can we not we just can't wait until we see the, the face of the, the father or the prodigal son saying, come on in. Yeah. Like uh, we all want that no matter what our doctrinal positions are. I think my final conclusion would be our whole doctrine and consequent conclusions of faith. It's all going to stand or fall based on how we understand the Bible. And I think you would, you would agree. I uh, do. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't, I think that's really ends up being the nub. Let's put it that yeah, way. That ends up being yeah. the nub of the disagreement. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the tip of the iceberg. If we see it differently, it's going to change so much over the other of the other mm-hmm. positions that we hold. I think I would also want to uh, say the way we view the Bible is not a small, a small opinion, or it, it has such dramatic effects on our faith and our view of God, how we believe we should behave, how we should do marriage and family and kindness. And so I, I would encourage all, all of your listeners and myself as well, let's keep reading the Bible so that we get to know God. I, I don't think God is a, a creator who inspired people with certain words, and he's not going to protect his word. If he's really God, he can put the words that he wants down there. And I think if he wanted it to just be one one revelation of many, he would have ordered history a lot differently than he has. But in that same vein, I I think we're better together. There's going to be doctrinally minded people who follow Jesus, and there's going to be social justice minded people who follow Jesus. And I hope that we never kick anybody out because the church needs all sorts of different kinds of people. And that's really the picture in Revelation when all the different people from different nations and tribes and tongues get together. I think we're all going to look around and be like, wow, this is uh, quite a motley crew. And I think we're better for it. And I think God designed us to be together. So thank you for having me on. I just really am honored that this conversation is happening. It, it's really rare that people who disagree on some things can't, they, they rarely talk. So I'm glad to be able to be talking with you and I appreciate everything you're doing, Dan. Yeah, Brad, thank you so much, man. It was really a fantastic conversation and it went, I don't know, not necessarily better than I expected, but I, it probably did. It did go better than <laughs> I expected. It really was fantastic. I think that people listening have a clear sense of where we agreed and disagreed and they can take that to their own process. Do, do you want to, do you have a public online presence or anything if people want to follow you? Not really. I'm on Instagram at mrbradjones and there's not much to see, but that's where they could find me. Okay. I'll put that in the show notes in case people want to just be in touch. That's great. Um, all right, man. Have a great day. Yeah. Thanks so much, Dan. Have a good day.
thanks to Brad for talking at length with me on this, you know, really kind of difficult subject. And he got personal and he expressed some emotion there a few times. Uh, and I just felt like he really came to this conversation honestly and openly. And it was helpful for me and hope it was helpful for you, too. Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing our conversation. He's available for more work. His email is in the show notes. And of course, you can become a patron and hear that follow-up episode with uh, Trans Regret Snoopy, uh, my increasingly good friend, who I am just loving talking to. Um, and maybe there'll be a little more work that that uh, she and I do in the future. We'll see. Um, that's at patreon.com slash dancoke. And make sure to join the Facebook group if you are a patron. And if you are a, the spouse of a patron and would like to be in the group, you can join as well. There's a little button you can click that says, my spouse is a patron, uh, and we will approve your membership. Okay, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks always for listening. 